Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 69? The psalmist brings three concerns before the Lord. David is the author. It's generally been accepted that David is the author, the musician, the psalmist, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And as we study the psalm, having been studying the life of David for quite some time on Wednesdays, we get an idea of what David was facing that we didn't really see in his life, uh, for example, in that part, that last part of his life where he was uh, preparing everything that was needed to build the temple. When you study it like we have studied it in, in uh, Chronicles uh, and in the latter part of 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, it just seemed as though as, that David was just sailing along and you may recall how we saw that part where David had built up uh, as the king in the government. I mean, he didn't think of it as his own, but he had built up a vast measure of wealth in the staple uh, goods of, of the kingdom. And it is discovered that he is storing up this wealth to be used when the temple is actually built. He also has stored up the building material. This took some time. And of course, it took a lot of expense. So a lot of his latter years, whereas in his early years and middle years, he was fighting wars and, and fighting rebellions. And those rebellions took a lot out of him. And it also, uh, it also divided the nation. There were some who cooled off toward David after, after, uh, after the two rebellions, that was especially the, the rebellion of Absalom, where so many of the kingdom had seemed to favor the younger guy, the son, to be the, to be the new king. So a psalm like this makes us realize that things, that David was greatly troubled personally, even though he appeared to be extraordinarily successful, and he was, considering also when we, when we pick out certain things that we'll see in this psalm, about the details of, uh, of, of daily administration as the king, it makes you really appreciate what a strong individual David really was. So three concerns are expressed before the Lord here from David. And the first one is that God would save him, that he would be delivered. So let's look at it beginning in verse one. For the conductor... On Shoshanim of David, he gives the musical instructions. And here, I think, the Hebrew adds the extra verse. Just be aware of that. I think I'll be a verse ahead of you on this. Save me, Elohim, for water has come up to my soul. I have sunk in muddy depths. There's no place to stand. I have come into the deep water and the current has swept me away. He feels like a man in quicksand, a man 
who is drowning. There's a strong current that works against him. He is, he is surrounded by people. And you don't really think about this when you're studying it over in 2 Samuel and Chronicles. But he's, he's surrounded by people who increasingly, apparently, begin to work against him on all that he's doing. So what is he doing? Well, at this point in his time, he's, he's, looking, he's looking to do everything that he can do uh, to prepare for the building of the house of God, the temple. Well, naturally, Satan <clears throat> doesn't want that to happen. And so Satan finds a way uh, to bring people against him, people who somehow have made their way uh, into, the, into the, the, the closest areas of, uh, of his life. Verse 4, I have become weary from calling out. My throat has become parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God, for Elohim. He's saying here, I'm, I, can't, I can't sleep. I'm constantly troubled by those who are around me who are trying to get me to stop what I'm doing. We learn in the course of this psalm that he knows this is the direction that Yahweh would have him go. And he's going to express, and we'll see it in this psalm, that if when people work against him, they are working against, against Yahweh. And that's why he is so confident in, uh, in calling out to Yahweh because he knows this is what Yahweh would have him to do. And yet there is this tremendous struggle that he has to go through to seek to accomplish the will of Yahweh. I suppose in that day, the person who had the attention of Satan more than anybody else would be David because he carried the promise of the Christ within himself and within his household. So naturally, uh, he has the attention of hell and uh, the minions and the demons, they're all, they're all on their attack and they find the weakest people around him to constantly trouble him. So what is his response? He verbally, orally, in his prayer time, cries out to God such that he begins to lose his voice. So his manner of praying would have been praying aloud, I'm sure, in his secret place, but crying out to the top of his voice to Elohim, to God, to help him. Not just that, but he's unable to sleep and he's unable to rest, and so his eyes are beginning to fail him. I mean, he's just, he's being physically exhausted by what he's facing. Those who hate me for nothing are more numerous than the hairs of my head. Mighty are those who would cut me off, who are my enemies because of lies. What I did not steal, steal I still will, I then will return. Everything in his life seems to be unfair and those who have made their way into important positions become his enemies. Now let's think about just, just the tremendous project of preparation for building the temple, which is something that of course hell itself would have opposed 
a way that God, the presence of God would be seen with his people, that his people would, would ask forgiveness for sin through a sacrificial system and all of the things that attended to temple worship. This, and this would, of course, would have solidified the people of God in a very special way in their worship and in the required things from the law that would have involved the temple and the priesthood. And David was making all of these appointments uh, and organizing the entire uh, affair of the, of the temple itself. It was, it was no small task to, ra- to, to raise the money to put together uh, a financial and economic package, if you will, to guarantee that the resources would be available when, when David's son would, would actually build the temple and to make sure that the finest of uh, building material uh, was available for the project itself, even down, you, if you recall how we studied this, even down to the nails and everything, nothing was left out. So it was very meticulous it was an ongoing and deep project that was expensive and took a lot of David's attention and a lot of his time. And people began to lie about him. You, well, you could see, you know, people perhaps were saying that David was taking a lot of the money for himself. That, and it was, a, it was a massive amount of money. We studied this back in the the last days of the reign of David. Uh, They could have said all kinds of things uh, or that he was getting his friends to sell him the finest of material and he was getting a kickback. Uh, There's no limit to the way they could have lied about him or that he could have stolen something. And he didn't. Elohim, you know my folly and my acts of guilt are not concealed from you. He says here, look, I'm not perfect. I've done wrong and I'm just a man who, who commits folly, but I'm not guilty of this stuff. Do not let those who hope for you to be shamed through me, uh, Lord God of hosts, Lord God of armies, let those who seek you be not disgraced through me, God of Israel. Not only does he recognize that he, of course, that he's under attack and that he is falsely charged and lied about, but he also knows that because of who he is and because of the claims that he's made, the Psalms that he's written, he also knows that his personal testimony is that he is a personal representative of Yahweh. So these people, if they disgrace David, they would disgrace Yahweh, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of armies. Let those who seek you not be disgraced through me. Don't let, now this happened once with Bathsheba. Nathan told him that it did. He said something to the effect that uh, to David, he said, God has forgiven you of your sin, but you have, you've given great cause for the enemies of God to rejoice and blaspheme his name. What David is saying now is what they are saying, I'm not guilty. I didn't do these things. 
I'm not perfect, but I didn't do this. And what they are saying is of such a nature that it would even disgrace you, Yahweh, God of Israel. Verse eight, for I have borne humiliation because of you. Disgrace has covered my face. By doing your will, by staying focused on what you have called me to do, I have suffered humiliation. I have suffered disgrace because I have done what you have called me to do. And that happens. You know, a, a man of God, in this case, David, and God places a burden, a calling on his heart, and this is what he wants to do, and he wants him to do, and Yahweh places the spirit within him to be narrowly focused on what God would have him to do. And this is not what suits everybody else. And so they begin to complain and tell lies and say things that aren't true. Uh, and this, this brings humiliation and disgrace to the one who is seeking to, to, to accomplish the will of God. It was strange to my brothers and alien to the sons of my mother. Even his family turns against him. For the envy of your house, that's the temple, has consumed me. And the humiliations of those who blaspheme you have fallen upon me. You see, to disgrace David and to say things against David when all he's trying to do is, is make sure that everything is ready for the building of the house of God. And they disgrace him, you know, they tell him he should be doing other things and, and uh, this is not something that he should do or he's spending too much money or he's focused too much on raising money, whatever. And he said, look, I'm consumed with the envy of your house and people are blaspheming and those humiliations are falling upon me. They're blaspheming you, but I'm the one who is visible, whom they can attack and stay on me all the time. And I bewailed my soul in fast. It was a disgrace for me. And I made sackcloth my raiment and I became a byword to them. And they talk about me, those who sit in the gate and they make melodies about me for those who imbibe strong drink. So he becomes, he becomes a joke. In mockery, they sing silly songs about David and they, they describe things that are, that are wrong or that are silly or whatever. And they call it, they call it David things. You know, this is like David. So David is, is saying, you know, these people, wherever they assemble, they laugh and they make melodies. Now, when you study Back when we were studying in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, you don't see that. The chronicler or, or the prophet in, in Samuel uh, or the, the, the scribe in Samuel just record the facts of what David is doing. But David is saying, I did it, but at no small cost to myself. And what the people did to me is unthinkable. But as for me, may my prayer to you, Yahweh, 
be in an acceptable time. Elohim, with your abundant kindness, answer me with the truth of your salvation, deliverance, salvation. Save me from mud that I not sink, that I be saved from my enemies and from the depths of water. Let neither the current of water sweep me away nor the deep swallow me and let a well not close its mouth over me. Now these, these are illustrations that he uses, but this is he feels like a drowning man. And if you're drowning and you get panicky, the more you fight against it, the more likely you are going to drown. And what he's saying is this thing, it's, it's not just the water, but it's the quicksand that is sucking me under. I'm surrounded by everything that's wrong. And it's as though... It's as though I'm being swept away. And so he begs, he cries out to Yahweh to not let this happen, to take away this sense of, of helplessness uh, and despair. Answer me, Yahweh, for your kindness is good. According to your abundant mercies, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant because I am distressed. Hasten to answer me. Come close to my soul. Redeem it because of my enemies. Redeem me. If David is elevated above the swell, if he is lifted up in what he is doing, and regardless of the opposition, the overwhelming opposition that seems to surround him, if he still can succeed then the people will see that this is the deliverance, the, the redemption of God in the life of David. And this is the only thing that he can appeal to is just the redemption of God, that God would redeem him from all of these awful things that are happening to him, that God, that every time something bad is happen, uh, every time something bad happens, David is able to score that much more success in what he's trying to do for the preparation of the temple. So the next thing that he calls out to the Lord for is vindication, that God would judge his enemies. Now, this is, he, he's going to ask for some things that sound awfully bad. However, in, in, in context, if he doesn't cry out for this, if God doesn't intervene and judge his enemies, well, they, they, could, they could appear to be successful against David and thus the blasphemy against Yahweh personified in what they would hope would be the failure of David uh, would, would appear to be successful. And David doesn't want that to happen. So he cries out for the judgment of his enemies. You know my humiliation, my shame, and my disgrace. All my oppressors are before you. Humiliation has broken my heart, and I have become ill. Now, you know, we talk about David living to be 70 years old. There were a lot of those guys in the Old Testament who lived a lot longer than that. He died at the age of 70. I think we begin to see how his life and his zeal to accomplish the call of God in his life takes its toll 
uh, on him. Spurgeon, as I recall, Spurgeon was only 52. I think I'm right. When he died. He started preaching in his middle teens. He was still a teenager when he was called to be the pastor of one of the most active Baptist churches in the London area. It was just phenomenal. It was unbelievable. As he progressed in the ministry and as the Lord blessed him, he went from the New Park Street pulpit to the tabernacle, the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, which was the same church, but they had to grow, had to move from the side of town that they were in to a better part of town where they would be more easily accessible. And this would be in a day where, you know, horse and buggy and this kind of thing. Um, so they had a, they, they, they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which would, would seat thousands of people. The average attendance at the height of Spurgeon's ministry was over 5,000 every Sunday. I've seen lithographs of, of the massive sanctuary. It was, I don't know, about four levels, the main level, then a balcony, and another balcony, another balcony. Spurgeon's pulpit had rails around it, and it jutted out way out into the middle of the floor. Uh, the, the baptistry, I think, was in front of him. And so he had a long, a large space where he could walk around where that railed area was and with his voice and with the way that they built the, 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 the tabernacle, uh, the acoustics were just right. And so he could deliver his message and the thousands who were there at every service could hear him clearly. Now, whenever, especially a work of God, whenever a work like that draws that much attention in what was in that day, probably the most important city in the world, the British empire being probably the greatest power on earth at that point in time that draws out the media and you can still read the media reports. The newspaper people were there all the time and they were always pressing in, trying to, trying to interview Spurgeon after every Sunday morning sermon. And they were always trying to catch him and, and they made I've seen the, the, the cartoons that were drawn about Spurgeon and made him look silly and all that he was doing. And the, but God kept blessing and the church kept growing and people had to be turned away. I, I've seen the lithographs where, where I don't know how many hundreds of yards the buggies were backed up and they didn't get there in time and the thing was already full. The tabernacle was already full and they couldn't come in and they had to be turned away and everyone knew about Spurgeon and uh, his, his tremendous uh, preaching, but the media wanted to hound him all the time. Uh, and they made his wife look silly and they made him look silly. They drew cartoons about him and wrote silly things about him all the time. And then, uh, then came Darwinism, evolution. And Spurgeon was one of the few preachers who stood against evolution. And he preached with a mighty voice and, and wrote with a mighty pen as one of the few, really, even in Baptist circles in, in England, 
standing against the folly of evolution and Darwinism. And they laughed at him and they scorned him and they called him a fool and that he lived in another, another century. He wasn't up with the times and, and all of this kind of stuff. His church kept growing. But all of the attacks against him began to weaken him. And uh, he, he developed a, a lung problem and he developed a, a, some, a leg problems with his legs. Uh, and he was weaker and weaker in the last six or eight years in the pulpit. And his elders and his deacons had to take him aside from time to time and make him go to a place that was provided for him in France so that he could take two or three months leave and rest and be strengthened so that he could come back into the pulpit again. And he was under these constant attacks wherever, whenever he was in London and uh, he was preaching in his pulpit, they, they constantly uh, came against him all of this time. And Spurgeon had a very difficult time understanding why these people would just make up this stuff. All he wanted to do was preach the gospel and teach the Bible. And he was a rather simple man in the sense that what his calling was, was a simple thing. But God had provided uh, through that ministry, one of the largest orphanages in the world at that time. And I think the orphanage is still in operation in London. He also started what we would call a seminary. It was a, a Bible college for young men who were going to enter into the ministry. And, and they would be taught uh, in the ways of uh, of conducting church at the Metropolitan. It was the largest in that day, the largest church in the world. But finally came the time where Spurgeon collapsed. He was in bed and he was never able to get up and he died. As a man in his 50s, because of the tremendous burden that he had to bear personally for doing what God had called him to do. And it all came to an end. Much like David here, if you look, it says here, humiliation has broken my heart and I have become ill. When we saw David in our previous Wednesday night studies in his last days, he was bedfast. He couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't even find comfort of warmth. They had to bring in, you remember the story of Abishag, they had to bring her in to try to help keep him warm. Nothing could warm him. And then he died at the age of 70. But the Bible says something interesting about him. And it, it says the same thing about the other patriarchs much earlier than David, who lived a whole lot longer than David. It said of David that he was full of days. David fulfilled what God had sent him to do. That's the, that's the beautiful thing of it. The negative side is, that the tremendous task to which God had called him had taken its toll on him and he becomes ill. I hoped for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Then they start messing with his food, with his meals. They put gall into my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now this is a messianic psalm. This is a prophecy of what happens uh, with, with regard to, uh, to Christ, the vinegar they gave him to drink. But also, contemporarily speaking, they were doing the same thing to David. 
And so David simply says, for vengeance, may their table before them become a trap and their hope for peace become a snare. May their eyes become dark so that they cannot see. Constantly cause their loins to slip. Let them, let them be crippled. Pour out your fury upon them and may your burning wrath overtake them. May their palace be desolate in their tents. Let there be no dweller. Stop them. Even if it means to kill them, stop them. Make them stop. For you, those whom you smote, they pursued. And about the pain of those whom you wounded, they tell. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your charity or your love. May they be erased from the book of life or from the book of the living and not be inscribed with the righteous. David says here, now there's a book of the living. It's not like the book of the Lamb's book of life. There's a book of the living. And when a person dies, he's removed from the book of the living. So David is saying, kill them. Then he says, I'll go one further. I hope that they're not inscribed with the righteous. <laughs> so David is, he's hurting, his legs hurt. He's in, probably in bed, he's ill and he can't get any comfort and the lies come out against him and the enemies surround him and he still has this calling from God to do all that he can do to prepare for the building of the temple. And what does he say? <laughs> he says, I, I hope these people ain't in heaven with me. <laughs> That's kind of what he says here. But I'm poor and in pain. May your salvation, Elohim, exalt me. In this section, what David says, David says, the only thing that can vindicate me before the people is for these people to be stopped in a dramatic fashion. And so that I can be raised up in a dramatic fashion and they see that what I'm doing for you, Yahweh, is the right thing. And in that, redeem me and exalt me so they will understand the importance of the work to which you've called me. Finally, the third need that he brings before Yahweh is praise. That Yahweh be glorified in all things. I shall praise the name of Elohim with song. I shall magnify him with a thanksgiving offering. Now this is probably something that David had promised. You know, a, a vow that he makes. Lord, I know that you're going to do this. And when it happens, I will pay the sacrifice, the vow that I've made. And this is probably what this is talking about. That I shall magnify him with a thanksgiving offering. And it will appeal to Yahweh more than a young bull that is mature with horns and hooves. When the humble see, they rejoice. Yea, those who seek Elohim and your heart will be invigorated. This will help people to be strong in following your word, your call, and your will. For Elohim hearkens to the needy, and he does not despise his prisoners. Heaven and earth will praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein. When Elohim saves Zion and builds the cities of Judah, and they dwell there and take possession of it, 
and the seed of his servants inherit it. And those who love his name dwell therein. David had a vision in his heart that there was a wonderful time coming when the people of God would fill the land of promise and they would live at peace and they would live in prosperity. They would take possession of the entire and complete land and never ever give it up ever again. And as he looks forward, he says, there's coming a generation who will inherit all of this and those who love his name dwell therein. And of course that that comes to fulfillment in the millennial kingdom that in his day was way on down the road. And I think very close in our day, but David had this sense of peace in his heart that what he was doing was a part of a generational struggle that goes on in the lives of those who are finally seeking to live in the kingdom of God. Well, with that, we'll be dismissed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and all that it means to us. We're mindful of our own struggles, Lord, but we're also mindful of how you give us added grace when we need it, strength when it's required, and we thank you, Lord, that you've promised that you'll use us until we're used up. And that no life is ever wasted in your service, but every life like that is fulfilled. And of course, we pray for that in our lives as well. Thank you for bringing us together tonight. Dismiss us in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.